Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of World of Intelligence by Jane's. As usual, Harry Kemsley, your host, and my co-conspirator, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry, good to see you again. Good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time as always. So what I thought we might do today, Sean, as we don't have any guests, which is uh, unusual from recent podcasts, but sometimes nice just to sort of catch up with where we've got to, is let's look back through recent podcasts, topics we've been discussing, more of that in a second, and look at the situation in Ukraine. What have we learned so far from the Ukrainian situation that will be important for uh, open source intelligence proponents like ourselves, analysts, and, and others that are listening to this? Because we've been talking for a while about the power of open source intelligence, the potential, its ability, for example, to provide context, perhaps in early indicators and warnings. We've even looked at it through the prism of things like traditional and non-traditional threats, which we discussed previously in the podcast. What I'd like to do today is look at all of those things we've been discussing and sweep them up through what we've seen so far with Ukraine. For some, Ukraine has been the coming of age of open source intelligence. And as we discussed in earlier podcasts, you know, we're seeing things in the open source environment that we never would have seen 20 years ago. But that is the potential now that's available to us through open source information that you can derive insight and therefore intelligence from. So Sean, that's what I'd like to talk about today. Look at Ukraine, look at the lessons that we've learned. What are your first impressions, by the way, from what we've seen in Ukraine and how that has implications for open source? Yeah, thanks, Harry. And as you said, you know, we've been talking about the developments in open source intelligence for a little while. And and I, I agree, it is the coming of age, but as all coming of age of, of everything, really, there are bumps in the road and things that have to be done. So there's still a little bit of a question mark, but there is no question that the entire community has stepped up and has had to step up. But there are several things that I think we do need to bring forward. And, you know, when we talk about lessons identified, it, it's almost implying that that it's gone. And of course, you know, it, it's worth reflecting the continued tragic situation in, in Ukraine sure. four months in. Yeah. And there is no sign it's going to end up uh, end anytime soon. I mean, we're into a very long term attritional war. And yeah. I think it's something that we as a community and I, I, I am going to be cheeky and ask you a few questions actually later in terms of yeah, you know, how you've positioned James to do to focus on an enduring campaign. Sure. Uh, and yeah. there's a moral sense of that as well, that we need to make sure that what is happening remains in the narrative and remains, you know, really high up there in addition to all the other things that are going on in the world. So I think it's reverse reflecting that first. Yeah, but I think that's, that's important. I, I certainly have detected what some might call Ukraine fatigue. The media seems to be a little less uh, ready to talk about all the things happening in Ukraine. So I think it's important that we, we do address that. Yeah. So going on to the lessons identified so far, and I, I think people are starting to realise the power of the data you know, you're seeing you, you, not a day goes past where you don't see a commercial satellite image or, you know, an in, even an, a phone intercept or, you know, social media reflecting what's going on. But I think one of the things that comes with, though, is that it's all very well to have the data, but you've got to have that context. I know we talk about context a lot, but it's, but it's important. You've got to have a subject matter expert that knows what they're looking at and what it means. 
Yeah. And the example I'd focus on there was the sinking of the the Moskva, the the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet uh, in April, I think it was. Yes. You know, some of the headline bullets there was, you know, was sensationalist to be the least. But, you know, there were even some narratives saying, well, you know, this signals the end of the war because because Russia will now capitulate. Now, symbolically, of course, it was important because it was their flagship. But but the Moskva has been through several iterations. I mean, it was laid down in, I think it was uh, 1982, um, maybe 83, but, but around about then. And, you know, and in terms of its function, you know, it provides a very good uh, air umbrella, air defence umbrella, a sure. little bit of uh, land attack capabilities. But in terms of absolute capability to win the war, it not particularly... Yeah. important but of course you've got to understand what a capability it brings etc cetera, etc cetera, before you can come up with that so so i think that providing that context the so what as i keep on talking about about any situation mm. i think is really important and and this has demonstrated that you've got to have that expertise yeah yeah one of the things that i've seen in jane's in the recent months is that having been looking at the build-up around the western borders of russia close to ukraine over the last few years detecting the patterns that are important for the indicators and warnings that might be revealed comes from that enduring look. And then as the conflict started to blossom, as it started to become clear, what we were looking at was a long-term war, packing the appropriate team together, the resources that you need to track this properly, to actually get a sense of what's happening in all the various domains you need to, was necessary but quite challenging because we all, all have so many different things to do in any particular day maybe we can come back to that later so, yeah, so just, how... sorry just pick it up on one of those sorry harry yeah, sure, um, no, just no. the indication warning is really important it, it brings you back to that subject matter expertise yes. because unless you're looking at something over a long time how do you know what's normal and what is not normal and yeah. uh, of course i would say this but i do think that james was probably right up front in saying this is not just a saber rattling. This is not just, a, you know, continuing the exercise. This is something different. But of yeah. course, you know, I know a couple of your analysts, they could only do that because they knew what they were looking at. So again, that context is everything. Yeah, you're right. I think it was about two, two and a half years ago when one of the lead analysts for that part of the world identified a number of indicators that something unusual was happening in terms of the way Russian forces were moving, the volume, the units that were moving, the Orbat pieces that don't normally get involved in certain activities were now coming together and moving to the west of Russia. And those indicators would only have been observable if you are watching them on an enduring basis and with expertise, to your point earlier about having the expertise to understand what you're seeing. And then from that long-term enduring look, force monitoring, they've derived all sorts of interesting patterns, patterns that I think most people would not even spot and within those patterns, there are clues about what might be happening, particularly when the they forces were involved in the Zabot exercise and then didn't disperse. Uh, one of my favorite uh, pieces of analysis, which is not revolutionary, but it was uh, such a great example, was a video broadcast by uh, Russian media showing Russian forces, quote, returning to base, unquote, except if you looked at the direction of the shadow and the time of day, it was in exactly the wrong direction they were heading if they were heading home. Yeah, a great little uh, piece of analysis there by people who know what they're doing. So uh, a great example. So let's step out then, Sean, in terms of the lessons for OSINT. We talked about just briefly there, you know, how you resource, how you actually manage the problem. What about 
how useful OSINT could be in these tactical environments, the, the tactical analysis and the products that might be required? Yeah, there's a balance here in terms of what it is that open source intelligence organizations are there to do. So, you know, yes, you can get into the end degree of tactical, but but it's what you're trying to achieve. I think that the, the best space for open source intelligence from a commercial perspective is giving the, the sort of more slightly step back view in terms of yeah. what's happening generally, because you can spend an awful lot of time and effort. And I'm sure the, you know, the intelligence organizations for government are doing this and finding out you know, where a particular battle group is and, you know, where where this company is done and did they succeed there? But I think having a trend analysis over, you know, day, daily and weekly is probably for us more bread and butter. But I do think now I've mentioned the government piece is that, you know, we're seeing clearly uh, governments, UK and US and others using open source intelligence far more than they ever had. I mean, you're seeing the daily, daily slides from the MOD. You've seen quite yeah. a lot of announcements coming out of the Pentagon, for example, about saying what's going on. Now, some of that will be using open source to obscure the fact that they've got other intelligence. Absolutely. And that seems to be yeah. effective. Yeah. But but some of it equal, I think, is starting to use to realize that open source intelligence, because it's its own source as well, it's it's valid and using that generically. I mean, I would say that the some of the MOD slides have been very vanilla indeed. Now, I think that's the one or two reasons, either because they do want to obfuscate what they really know, or probably because they don't quite have the confidence yet of open source intelligence to go, yeah, actually, that's right. Let's let's put it out there. So I know that slightly obscures the question you asked, but I think our role is is to inform. And yes, there's going to be all, always going to be tactical events. And I think validating tactical events as well. And you, you, you know, you remember the SU-34 uh, shoot down, which we were able very quickly to A, validate and B, work out where that came from and therefore extrapolate the fact that the VKS, the Air Force of the Russians were not having it all their own way. So yes, absolute tactical incidents, but back to the, and what does it mean? Yeah, I think the um, the idea that open source might be used in a tactical environment, the, the, the point of my question, I think you've answered perfectly well. I think there is a complementary nature of open source. And although there is a time sensitivity that we can address with immediately available open source, the validity of it and therefore the actionability of it, of course, is always going to be a question. And you need the appropriate amount of resource and expertise to validate the vast volume and variety of different open sources that might be coming at you at high speed. So yes, I think that, that complementary nature, that broader understanding and setting the eyes of the classified capabilities on the right things might be the role in the tactical environment rather than actually answering the questions and getting the uh, the forces on the ground to really understand what's happening. That comes from more classified environments, I'd suggest, and we are complementary to that. So what about the media then? Let's just talk about the media just for a second, because you mentioned the media on the way through. Jane's, like many other commercial organisations, has been uh, pumped for all kinds of information from media outlets wanting to get, quote, insights to what's happening on the ground. Clearly, there is a play here in the information domain in terms of misinformation and disinformation, and we've seen plenty of both, I'm sure of that. But what about the open source for media? The use of open source for media has probably never been as good as it is at the moment in terms of the amount of stuff they're getting access to. But what role do you think they play in terms of the understanding of what's happening on the ground for the customers of their media, but also for potentially intelligence agencies that are watching the media? Yeah, and I think you've got to 
qualify what media we're talking about. So sure. if it's the big mainstream media, then, you know, by and large, they will try and be as objective as possible. And certainly the, the dealings I've had with some of the organisations, some of the big media ones doing some talking head stuff, they do try and ask genuine questions and listen to the answer. And, and actually what I have noticed is that the, the quality of the questions, the re relevance of the questions is getting better. Mm. You'd be surprised at how little time you have to actually talk to the people before you go live. So you've got to get your bullet point out in a very sort of concise way. It really is like being intelligence officer, right? You've got five minutes to get over your point, go. Uh, and then they move on. So sometimes it's a little frustrating in terms of, yeah, but I didn't give you get a chance to say the so what for it. So so there's a little bit of short termism there, but they, they are very important in terms of bringing it to the public in a way. And people like myself and you have a real uh, role in giving it to the population in simplistic. And I don't mean simple. I mean, simplistic, easy to understand bites because they haven't got long and they're not steeped as we are. So I think yeah. clarifying things, I think there's a big role there. But you know, we mentioned the information campaign, and this has been fascinating to me this time. You know, the Russians are the masters at uh, hybrid warfare, you know, using all means of power, um, including misinformation, disinformation. And I think that, you know, while they will easily put out disinformation all day long, we're seeing it daily even now. You know, I think I think there's a there's an obligation on us to say it how it is. Now, that's not to say that there isn't messaging going on. Of course, there is. You know, you just had to see some of the speeches. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by Sir Jeremy Fleming, the director of GCHQ, about some of the things he was saying. I think he was down in Australia when he did a speech that was basically calling them out, saying, you know, the, the, you're about to use chemical weapons or you're about to have a false flag operation, which allowed you to do so. Now, how how much that impacted whether the, the fact they didn't use them, I don't know, but I suspect yeah. that A, that was the intent and B, seems to have worked so far. Yeah. So there's that that whole information disinformation campaign. And once again, an organisation like ours, we need to be careful not to get into the middle of that. And the way we do that, of course, is by doing all the things we do right now using accurate, you know, well-founded data and coming up with an objective assessment analysis of that using all the years of tradecraft that's so important we keep that i mean of course there is going to be stuff that and we th this is more the moral discussion that we can have we keep talking about actually we need to talk about the ethics yeah, we'll do but that you know as long as we're objective without giving too much away in terms of you know what we know about our own sites for example then i think that, that we have a really important play part to play in that object let's just let's just talk about that a bit further so you're Observation about the Russian masterclass in the information domain and hybrid warfare. I think that certainly felt the case in recent times. I'm not sure that feels the same anymore. I feel as though the Russians are looking increasingly clumsy and on occasions looking fairly foolish. Now, the counterpoint to that before you respond to that point is the news, the media seems to be fairly full of successes that the Ukrainians are having. I'm not seeing anywhere near as much of the Russian successes. And that in itself could be a macro theme right here. We've got this wish to see Ukrainians succeed in the uh, face of an onslaught from their neighbours to the east. And therefore, we almost don't want to report, almost like the echo chamber syndrome, where we don't want to report on things that look like the Ukrainians aren't doing very well, but we're quick to report when the Russians appear to be struggling. And I wonder how much we're not seeing that would give us that balanced report. Maybe that's one of those areas where the open source intelligence, particularly commercially available, could begin to address that balance because the media don't seem to be doing it. The point I'm making is both, I'm not sure the Russians are as good as they think they are, or maybe we thought they would be in uh, either military capability, perhaps, or maybe the information war around it. And if that's true, is that because 
I'm only seeing one side of the story through the media. I'm only hearing about it through a lens that says Russians are bad, Ukrainians are good, therefore we'll report the Ukrainian success, we won't report any Russian success. Yeah, this gets to the crux of the issue about what it is we're there to do. So I absolutely agree. You know, clearly we're not reporting on, you know, Ukrainian losses. And of course, there have been, uh, you know, a number of losses. Now, is that because the data is not there? Because obviously we rely to a, a certain extent on Ukrainian people to report what's going on. They're not going to report that. Is it because we're not seeing it or because deliberately we're choosing not to sort of say anything that's going to put, put Ukraine at risk? I don't know the answer to that. Clearly, there are Ukraine losses, but even subliminally, maybe we're not reporting as much as we should. I do think that we have actually reported on successes for the Russians as much as yeah, they've happened. Yeah. So I'm not sure that is. But, you know, yeah, I'm, and I've, I'm, certainly, and, I've certainly seen it, Sean, in, in the reporting that we've been p- p- putting out from James, the, a fairly balanced scorecard, if, if you will, allow yeah. that analogy. But what I'm saying is in the media environment, I'm not seeing what appears to be a balanced scorecard. It seems to be pretty heavily weighted towards yes, the no Ukrainian successes. And maybe that's for, for, for wider reasons, because I know that time will evaporate in a short. Let's move on past the uh, the media aspect. Sorry, could I just point, Sean, uh, ahead, yeah. make a point on what you're saying about the information campaign? I completely agree in terms of the Russians are being made to look foolish. They're dead bodies that actually walk up and get away and still gets filmed. Now, part of that is because media is everywhere, but I, I agree that they're nowhere near as sophisticated as we believe that they were. Yes. Uh, and that applies to the entire capabilities as well. Yeah, you know, we've so, come to that. Exactly, yeah. we've come to that point, exactly. So, you know, obviously uh, we wrote a piece early about the, the basically the failures of the of the Air Force, but also more than that, you know, when you've got 140,000 ish troops and quite a lot of hardware there that, that doesn't do that four day blitz that we wanted to, why, uh, that, that we expected. I have to say that we were all surprised that the entire community, I haven't met anyone that said, oh, yeah, we knew that it was going to happen a lot longer than four days, certainly at the time anyway. I think we were surprised because we were looking at the numbers. It's easy to play the numbers game. But what was missing from that, and you know, we always talk about capability rather than you know the more moral side of things, which is the will to fight. So a lot of the Russian troops, as we've discussed before, didn't even know they were going to war, let alone with a mm. with a sister country. A lot of them had lots of affiliations with Ukraine. Sure. Command and control was hopeless because they're never used to using bringing different districts together to work together, let alone in a combined arms situation. Yes. And of course, you know, some of the capabilities weren't as good as we thought either. So but it is a conundrum that I always look at is we always, always, always overestimate in the intelligence world the capabilities of the adversary, probably because we're trained to look at the worst case scenario. But I think there's more yeah. to it than that. And, that. and that probably needs some looking looking at in the future. Yeah, I think there's um, there's work there for the open source environment and that moral component and that broader understanding of capability rather than just equipment specifications. I think you could probably spend a lot of time staring at uh, equipment specification charts and make a judgment about how capable a force is, particularly when you multiply that by the numbers of those pieces of equipment and or troops around them. But as you say, there's there's more to it than that. And the social media feeds that have been full of news of concerned families, concerned soldiers on the front line, probably on both sides, although we've only seen it really from the Russian side, give you a sense of the lack of moral endeavour from the Russian side of the conversation. Maybe that's a big, big part of the lack of progress they've had against what was expected. But there's probably a broader perspective on this, Sean, in terms of reputational damage. Um, There's equally, by the way, uh, I've been to a couple of uh, world defence shows in the recent times on behalf of Jones, and 
you know, the number of people there who are not buying Russian exports, Russian arms, yeah. because of the problems they've got politically doing so. These things are difficult to quantify, but they're real. The reputational damage, the Russians aren't all seven foot tall. The export of arms is going to have an impact on their arms industry and the and the economy. What other things might it be doing, though, in terms of the military superpower that we believe Russia is and the, the country of Russia? What else is it doing, this uh, this this dimmer view we now have of them in the light of what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, and this this leads straight into the we need to. So the lessons identified from me exactly as you just said, you know, people are going, poor Russia, not so good now. You know, I'm obviously an intelligence guy, so glass half empty. We always learn the lessons of the last war, not the future war. <laughs> yeah. So it'd be very easy to walk away and saying, you know what? You know, we've probably written down about 50 percent of their capability, conventional capability. They're not that good. Aren't we good? And, and we don't need to worry about them anymore. And that would be the worst thing we could possibly do. Yeah. Because although they don't seem to have learned many lessons, this is a a very defined operation and they have you know, uh, calibrated it. It doesn't seem like it, but they have to calibrate it to an extent. Of course, they'll learn the lessons as well and they'll start developing capabilities. And of course, there is still this strategic threat, which they are very good at. You know, they still have strategic air capability. Of course, they've got their full spectrum of nuclear capabilities, which they're mm. still developing. So mm. we just need to be slightly cautious about that. And of course, from a macro perspective, the only way to deal with Russia is through strength. And certainly for now, NATO has gone, oh, right, you know, so we still do have a role. You know, the NATO summit's coming up next week and there's a new strategic concept. Yep. We need to make sure we do not, you know, declare victory early and go away for tea and medals, but think, right, we now have to posture ourselves and position ourselves as a position of strength to yes. stop anything further on that. Yeah. And of course, the, the Scandinavian countries that are now joining the community yeah. are making an interesting outcome for Russian moves in terms of their border with NATO increasing by so many tens of percent because of the uh, the invasion to Ukraine. What about broader um, unintended consequences, Sean? We talked uh, previously about the ability for open source information and intelligence from it to track things like traditional and non-traditional yeah. threats. Yeah. So let's just bring that in. What about the energy insecurity, the food insecurity that we've started to see as a result of um, the invasion? What else can we be looking for in the traditional and non-traditional threats that we talked about previously that open source might be able to glean out of the situation in Ukraine? Yeah, this this is a really important piece of open source intelligence because, you know, the capacity is there to start looking at the wider stuff that may not be immediate. But but of course, I'm not saying that the intelligence agencies won't be looking at this, but they're very, very focused right now and they've got the big things to look at. So, yeah. you know, the big thing, of course, right now for me is the food insecurity. You know, if you look at what normally that that Russia and Ukraine combined produce in terms of wheat, barley, and and maize, yep. you know, something like quarter of all of all wheat, global wheat, comes from the two of those. In fact, I was just reading something: the World Food Program, Ukraine were a, were a big donator to that. They're now a recipient of some of that. Now, if yep. you extrapolate this and compare it, and, and I, I know I use this example probably too often, but it's really coming back to the head again, is the Arab Spring. The trigger for that was unaffordable wheat prices yep. based yep. on a drought, which stopped the wheat. Yep. Now, we're seeing that already. And of course, the biggest exports as well were from Ukraine were into yes. North Africa and the Middle East. Now, they are areas where, you know, traditionally we have had problems with violent extremists, extremism. And of course, what triggers that is 
not just on government spaces, but an inability to provide for oneself and, and, and yeah. other people. Yeah. If you look at Egypt, for example, tourism, you know, that's what we're talking about tourism. Russian tourism in Egypt was massive. That's yeah. not happening so much anymore. So again, it's going to impact economies and all of that that comes with. So we do need to keep monitoring that. And I'm sure there are there are elements that we haven't even yet thought of that will be triggered by that. I mean, yes. look at supply route. We're all struggling for hydrocarbons. Of course we yeah. are. I mean, they're there, but A, we've shut down a lot of stuff and B, we've been over-reliant. Yeah. And this is where you mentioned the high north, which is, again, it's fascinating. Now, you know, we've started to focus on the high north before actually the, the, the Russian invasion started. But that brings all your traditional, non-traditional stuff together. You know, yes, there are sovereignty issues, but as as they reckon by 2050, I think that in the summer anyway, those sea lines of communication, the northern lines are going to be open. open yeah. So that's going to affect things like, you know, the, the trade routes and, and protection of, you know, is the new relationship between China and Russia going to become strained because China is going to want to use that? There are something like, again, uh, statistics I looked at, something like, I think it's 30% of unexploited gas and 13% of the oil is under the Arctic uh, or within the Arctic Circle. Now that, that people are looking for alternative sources of energy, and we're going back to the Northern Harbour to hydrocarbons, there could be a race for that, as well as the rare earth metals that we know are there as well. So there's all sorts of things that bring that together. And that's mixing the traditional and non-traditional. And I know that, you know, people like the, the certainly the US and the UK are actually formulated new Arctic strategies, whereas the sort of philosophy up until about two years ago was nothing to see here, just leave it alone, where yeah. we can't afford to do that now. So it sounds then, we made a point earlier on about the potentially complementary nature of open source intelligence to support a tactical environment by giving it the broader context. It sounds again as though a lesson out of recent events is that complementarity of open source to look at the flanks. Yeah. If you think about traditional and non-traditional threats as being the flanks of the war fighting going on in Ukraine. So I don't know that there are many agencies, national security agencies that have the expertise and or the capacity to look at energy insecurity, food, in, food insecurity, and how that could imp impact national, national security. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then that's again a role that an agency like Jane's or other open source information providers could support to give the indicators of what could be happening, particularly if we took something like the Arab Spring, the pattern of the Arab Spring, how did it start? Why did it start? How did that start to trigger a series of follow-on events? How are those follow-on events? communicated through social media, for example, we can use those patterns to track the potential emergence of other threats from these non-traditional threat sources like food and energy insecurity. So I think there's a complementarity piece there. Yeah. What about... And, and then, sorry, and then the final bit that, uh, that I've only just thought of, which I should have done actually, is, um, is threat finance. You know, it's all yeah. about the economy. How sophisticated and good are we at tracking the money? You know, not just the sanctions, although that is a really important thing. You know, are they having an impact? Sure. What sort of impact? What are the unintended consequences? You know, but also for our own economies, the dependency on oil and all the rest of it, you know, are we going to bankrupt ourselves? And at the end of the day, the economy is what will decide how long that uh, we, we want to pay attention to this and also how long Russia can sustain what it's doing right now. So I think that's a really important part as well. Yeah. What about looking a little bit further east then? So we've talked about Russia, we previously talked about China and other potential adversaries and adversarial consequences. What do you think China's thinking right now? At what's happening in and around Ukraine with one of their neighbors, Russia? 
who are in a similar position in terms of the political, the geopolitical situation. What do you think China's uh, thinking right now around things like its Belt and Road Initiative or Taiwan, yeah. for example? There'll be no question. They'll be very, very interested in seeing what the intended and unintended consequences are. I mean, if you if you remember the the Olympics, you know, there was a very much a flourish between signing a new security organ, um, yeah. agreement between the two. When it happened, there was a, well, we're, we're going to help Russia as much as we can. That narrative has definitely dumbed down or gone away to the extent that, hang on a minute, we don't really want, because at the end of the day, for, for, for China, their future is all about the economic you know, superpower. They need the economy. They need the reliability. They need to be trading with everybody to to maintain their position, develop their position. So I think they're looking at that from one perspective. But equally, they do look at Taiwan as a different issue. They look at it as part of their, their own country, which you could superficially argue is similar to the Crimea and places like that. So why wouldn't we? And so they'll be clearly looking at what the Western response is. Yes. Now, you know, it could be glass half full for a change that in focusing on that now and in seeing the NATO and the Western reaction, which has been, you know, reasonably good, actually, although how long it lasts, I don't know. Mm. It could make them think twice because there is that will, there is that determination not to allow a big country to bully and, and ultimately true. annex another one. But that's got a long way to play yet. Yeah, true. But the other side of that coin is, if the net of all of that posturing by NATO, Europe and other governments is a set of economic sanctions, I'd, I'd love to sit down and do a study of if you applied similar or appropriate sanctions to China on a similar scale, how much of a problem is that for them? Yeah. Because if the answer to that question is actually not much, then that's not a deterrent for them. That's that's a that's a price they've got to consider paying for doing something that they've said they wanted to do for a number of years now, which is to reclaim or repopulate a uh, part of the world they consider to be theirs anyway, Taiwan. So I wonder how much that really plays in the minds in Beijing in terms of their strategy for Taiwan. Yeah, that would be an excellent piece of, uh, piece of work to do, the economy, economic side, I think. Yeah. You know, because if they find Russia and China find themselves mutually supportive, I do think that we'll probably find, and I don't know this, that, that China is so dependent on total global trade that it would be potentially a step too far. But I might be wrong on that. And again, it goes back to what is the stamina of NATO? Because if we're still in this position in a year's time, even six months time, is our NATO nations, because at the end of the day, you know, NATO is 30 nations that agree to do stuff. So it's individual nations. You know, are the Germanys and the Frances of this world going to get bored is not the right word, but are they going to get tired of it and go, you know what, we've got our own economy, you know, nobody seems yeah. to be focusing on this, let's just go back to normal. Will NATO go back to, to contemplating its naval and, you know, restructuring itself to be seen to doing stuff? Because, you know, it doesn't have the endurance to actually maintain forces at a high posture. That yeah. would be disastrous because that stage, um, you know, both Russia and China go, well, actually, we were right all along. You know, there isn't that determination in the West yeah. to do something about it long term. You've got so, to outlast them. You've got to be correct. more patient they are. Exactly yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Sean, we haven't got on to the ethics piece that we've been talking about for quite some time. So let me just bring that in briefly towards the end of this conversation, because I know we're getting short on time here. Um, we said earlier on about the idea that objectively, if you're going to describe what's happening in and around Ukraine, the reporting should be balanced. It should be showing what we know about what's happening of all aspects, not just one aspect, you know, the, the bad Russia versus the good Ukraine influence over what we report and how we report it. How important do you think ethically now we should be in terms of 
that reporting accuracy? Do you think that we should be conveying a particular narrative because it is ethically correct that we do see Russia's activities as being the wrong thing to have done geopolitically, and therefore it's, it's appropriate that we should be biased in our reporting? And that is the $50 million question, actually. That, and I know James has got you know practices and checks and balances in there to make sure that you know a we don't inadvertently give information to you know countries that are going to do bad things with it so i think the first thing to say is that we should never ever give out any information that could cause people to die that's not what we're there for um yeah you know it's not it's not about targeting it's not about anything there so situational awareness it's so we're talking about what level of granularity and so i think if any reporting resulted in say the Russians saying, oh, they've clearly got a weakness there that we didn't know about, right, we'll attack that weakness. Then for me, you know, personally, I would not do that because at the end of the day, you know, the Russians are the aggressors. We would have a moral obligation not to do that. Equally, though, I think we also have a moral obligation to say, you know, if Ukraine are sort of under real pressure and struggling and losing lots of forces, then I think generically we have an obligation to say that as well yeah, because it is giving that ground truth. Particularly in the light of either media or political fatigue, as you were describing earlier, you know, you mentioned a couple of European nations, if they were to become fatigued with the idea of supporting it, but we were able to demonstrate that without continuance of that support, then the nation would become under threat, peril of the uh, the Russian invasion. I think that's a that's an ethical debate we need to have and an ethical discussion, moral discussion we need to have in terms of how we report. Um, but it's an interesting balance you raised there in terms of reporting something to show why we have to support the Ukrainians. The flip side is by demonstrating that the Ukrainians have become weak in a certain area, which is why they require support, actually encouraging uh, further aggression potentially. So that's a, that's an interesting debate to be had, but uh, we're out of time on that for now. So Sean, let me draw stumps. I will, of course, as always, ask you for your one big takeaway for what is a big lesson from Ukraine for open source intelligence. And as I'm going to go first, I get the chance to choose the one I'm going to use, which always is the one you wanted, of course. For me, why do I think open source has a lot to learn from Ukraine? It's the complementary nature of what you, you can get from open sources alongside the classified. I think many of us have forgotten about the heavy metal warfighting aspects of warfare. We have been focusing for such a long time on hybrid and other means of warfare, and rightly so. But actually, when tanks roll across your borders, there isn't an awful lot of, quote, cyber activity that's going to change that. You know, machinery and armour uh, is going to have its own vote. So for me, a complementarity and the ability to support both traditional and non-traditional environments of warfare is where open source is most important. The complementarity, that's my takeaway. Sean? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer mine in a minute, but afterwards I'm going to be very cheeky. I'm going to ask ask you a question, actually. Just turn, turn it put. But so I guess it's on the complementarity thing. And I think that there is still needs to be more work on how we actually work together, the commercial world and, and defence. Sure. Because yes, at the edges, you know, it's it's still very transactional, right? We need a bit of information on this or we need this tool or we need that capability. Sell us a tool up, we go. I, I don't yet see, I mean, we're having it in edges in, in just, just on the periphery, but I don't see yet a mature conversation of saying, right, how do we work together properly so that you can fill our gaps, you yes. know, whichever way it is, the defence community sets its demand signal in a way that we can answer without 
being too sensitive mm-hmm. in terms of either producing stuff we don't we don't want to or or they don't like to reveal their intelligence gaps yes that that conversation still isn't very mature as far as i can see sure and i think sure. we have to keep that conversation going now on the in the ukrainian context to to mature it um i don't know how that happens because we've been trying for quite a bit now um but i think we've really got to do that if we are ever going to get the the real sweet spot where you know the 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 commercial world is able to support defense in the way it needs to whilst maintaining its objectivity yes you know so that that's going to be evolutionary rather than revolutionary but we're not there yet we're really not despite the best no. efforts so no. that's no. what i would say my final question for you was bearing in mind that this is in terms of for james you know your foundational intelligence is fantastic you know we know about all the capabilities the equipment all the rest of it and i might be wrong here but in terms of a campaign footing I think this is the first time you've said, right, we now need to support something on a campaign basis in terms of, you know, not just threads, but a an operation. So how have you been able to optimise that for James and what lessons have you learned? I mean, you've got a great team working on it, but, you know, mm. how much advanced did that? So I just wonder where what lessons you've learned and what that they will then bring for for the future for how you support future operations. OK, it's a good question. Well, first of all, the fact that we have force monitoring on an enduring basis means that when things start to blossom up into a potential threat environment like we've seen in Ukraine, actually, we start from a good place. We're not scrambling around trying to piece together the picture. We have the baseline foundation picture. We understand the orbats, we understand the equipment, specifications, the force deployments, how they reorganize, and we know all that. So we have a good foundation. The team of people, I think it's about 78 people currently in Jane's uh, from the hundreds of analysts, we have 78 people currently working on Ukraine alone. That is not all Ukraine specialists. That's going to be specialists from equipment, specialists from a variety of different backgrounds. The the big lesson for me is how do you bring them together quickly and then make them effective quickly? Now, anybody that's been in a multi-talented team will know that's actually a bigger challenge than most people give it credit for. Just throwing together people with backgrounds that are various, with diverse expertise, et cetera, is not enough getting them to work together functioning as a team and being effective and efficient that's that's probably the big lesson for james now we've always been good at the foundational we've moved into current intelligence you know more contemporary time sensitive intelligence in recent times but being able to do both and bringing that all together to discover intelligence to find things that otherwise wouldn't that's been the area of discovery for james through ukraine so for us as an open source intelligence agency there's been traditionally known for its foundational intelligence support to customers, more recently the sort of current intelligence environment, the ability to bring that together and discover new insights has been interesting, but that's been absolutely resting on not just the technology now being employed to amplify the intelligence process, but the people and knowing how to bring them together and how how to work them together in time-sensitive environments. That's been the, the big lesson for us. So we've learned a lot as and when the next conflict should arise, we will feel comfortable we've got the foundation, but I think we'll also be ready for that in terms of that diverse set of people we bring together and how we blend them together into an agile working group. Yeah, strange enough, had you asked me that question from a defence perspective, I'd have said exactly the same thing. It's bringing the right people together and making the total more than the sum of the whole because, you know, individuals working together as a team, which which when you're under under pressure, 
it kind of tends to happen anyway, but different yeah. different challenges in the commercial setting. Thank, thanks yeah. for that. Yeah, thanks, Sean. And thanks for the question. It's nice to be on the receiving end of questions for a change <laughs> rather than the guy just flinging them out. The uh, the, the hospital passes I've given you in the past. I know you thank me for. So, Sean, thank you very much for your time as ever on that. Um, we'll pick up some of the threads. We will. We will get to the ethics of open source intelligence in the near term. And until then, thanks for listening to those that are. And we'll speak again soon. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.